left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Trust is everything. I remember being a first-time operator myself. The way I built that trust was through talking about my story, the Coming to America story, and that's how people build trust quickly. So you have to understand the person who you're investing in. Like my company, RSN Property Group, it's a banner, but they're really investing in me. They're making sure that I'm going to be a good fiduciary responsibility with their money. And I need, as a sponsor, need to make sure I'm stepping up to their expectations. That encompasses a lot of things. So as a passive, I also have to trust the person who I'm investing with. And that comes through time, interviewing a lot of different sponsors. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. Hi, I'm Kenny Wolf. You're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Reed Goosens with us. He is the owner of RSN Property Group, specializing in acquiring institutional multifamily assets across the U.S. He is also the host of Investing in the U.S. podcast and an author of two books, Investing in the U.S., The Ultimate Guide to Real Estate and 10,000 Miles to the American Dream. You might notice a small accent that he has because he is an Aussie. So, Reed, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, thank you so much for having me, mate. Yeah, glad to have you. And, and I hope I pronounced that right. The Aussie, right? That's it. That's it. By the time people listen to this, the World Cup will be over. But right now, we are both riding high because both of our countries made it through the knockout round. So we're chatting about that. Pretty excited. But the way I'd like to open this is if you could tell me your financial journey, where you started, how you got to the US, how you got into real estate, how you became a syndicator. We'd love to hear all of it. Well, mate, do you have three hours? No, I'm just joking. We'll condense it a little bit. So I've been in the US over 10 years now. I moved here in 2012, but the journey starts earlier than that. I mentioned in the green room, we were talking about the Dutch team and the Euros and you were talking about the Euro 2000. Well, I was in Europe in 2008. And in 2008, I just graduated university. I was working in London, 2012 Olympic Games, 2009, I was in the South of France. And in the South of France, I was working on the super yachts as a deckhand. That's where I met my then girlfriend, now wife, who's American. So 
2009, gallivanting around the south of France, crossing the Atlantic Ocean, having a great time. 2010, I'm back in Australia. My background's in structural engineering. I'm 24, 25. I'm just thinking to myself, there's got to be more to life than this. And that's where the curiosity started. And I had no idea what entrepreneurship, man. I just thought it's a sexy name for a small business. But I did stumble upon the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, and that was the right time, the right moment to start thinking about doing more with my money. From there, it was more just like, okay, I build stuff. I'm a civil structural engineer. Why don't I get into real estate? And I spent the next sort of 12 months in Australia learning about whatever I could in the Australian market. Coupled with that, I was falling in love with this American girl and I wanted to chase her across the globe. And so in 2012, she had finished her master's degree in Australia and we were like, screw it. There's a good visa here for Aussies if you've got a white collar job. So I moved to New York City, which I just wanted to live in New York City for a period of time. And really, Jim, I just moved here to really be an expat. I loved New York City. I was in love with this girl. She was willing to move to New York City. She's originally from LA. And on a whim, we just moved here. I had no idea that I'd be here 10 years later talking about multifamily and buying thousands of apartments and blah, blah, blah. But we are here. And it's a really, I think it's a cool story, cool journey. Hopefully, we'll unpick it a bit more, but there's some cool lessons that I've learned that I can help other people get involved with passive investing or even active investing, whatever it might be. But you know, my whole shtick is that today I run a company with over 3,000 units and RSM Property Group, you mentioned, over $600 million in AUM and you know, achieve financial freedom, all that sort of good stuff. And I don't say that to boast. I just say it more that I can move halfway across the world. I came here with limited money. I had no visa. I didn't know anyone. And I really just came here to be an expat. And all of a sudden, 10 years later, here I am. So a lot of stuff went on in between that. But that's sort of the, the coming to America story in the beginning. That's a great story. And I'd like to dig in a little bit more and, and learn. Like a lot of people read the little purple book, as we call it, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. What was it in there, if you remember, that kind of lit the fire in you to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then were there opportunities in real estate in Australia? Or was it just that the real estate opportunities were better in the US? To answer your first question, when you think about Rich Dad Poor Dad, I know it's many years ago since I read it, it's a good pie in the sky, this is the dream. There's no actual yeah. action items. And as an engineer myself, I'm always like, okay, what's step one? <laughs> I love this quadrant and I, I get it. I'm hooked. You've got me. But it seems like a big jump between where I am now to where that is over there. So it was more to do with then going out and figuring it out. So how do you go figure it out? Well, okay, well, it was about, I decided that I was going to go down the path of real estate and it was just trying to learn as much as I could because Rich Dad Poor Dad is, is that ignition to start the fire but it doesn't have the roadmap of what you've got to do, particularly if you're sort of still in a W-2 job and you're earning some money. And that's when I went and started looking for other people to network with around real estate. Coincidentally, where I lived in Australia, I had the only small networking event. Today, it's huge, yeah, this particular networking event, but it's called the Brisbane Property Network Association or something. It had like 100 people. And I'd go to that and I was starting to learn about the Australian market and different things. And so to answer your second question, it wasn't that I came to the US in order to buy real estate. It was, I wanted to chase this girl. I wanted to live in New York City. Real estate didn't really matter. Then it started to replicate what I was doing in Australia here in the US, i.e. go to networking events, i.e. learn the different lingo about US investing because it's a little bit different to Australian investing. And we can get into the differences. But the big thing that I found coming to the US was like, here I am, small little networking club that I was a part of in Australia. Boom, I'm in New York City at a RIA, a Real Estate Investment Association, 30 bucks at the door. There's 200 people in the bloody room. I was just like fire hose of information, so to speak. It just, a lot of Americans don't realize that they actually have such an incredible, particularly back in 2012, 
I was blown away at the access to information. Oh, I probably would have to pay some sort of guru back in Australia to teach me. And it was readily available at these networking events and these books that I was like, wow, this is just, it's at my fingertips. And today it's only even better. But it was just more my coming, that sort of outsider's perspective coming in and saying, geez, I'm going to take this with both hands and run with it. So what was the next step? You're in New York City. You're going to real estate meetings. I assume you're not investing in real estate in New York City. No one does that, right? So like I got in through an accidental landlord, then I bought some single family homes, then I bought some multifamily, then I decided I didn't like that. I wanted to be completely passive. How did you go from, I'm interested in real estate to I own 4,000 units? Good question. It started with using the money I had saved. I'd saved about thirty dollars or $40,000 from my corporate career. I hadn't come from money. And I was like, what's the most amount of units I could buy at once? And I knew coming from Australia, $30,000 or $40,000 doesn't get you very far in Australia. All of a sudden, I figure out there's these secondary and tertiary markets. And I'm like, you can buy triplex. I bought my first triplex for $38,000 all cash. And I was like, oh my God, this is in Syracuse, New York. So I chose a market that I could get on a Greyhound bus and I'd leave Penn Station every Saturday morning. My mates are like, where the hell are you going? And I'm like, I'm going to Syracuse. And they're like, what the hell's in Syracuse? And I'm like, I'm just going to check it out. And I, I did that for a number of months. The broker would pick me up in his little RAV4 and we would go around looking at these cheap properties. And it was through one of the networking events in New York City that I met another expat who was buying some stuff up there. So he sort of gave me the introduction into a market. And it was like, look, it's within four hours. I can get there in an emergency. It's really cheap compared to I could buy it all cash because no one was lending to me, Jim, because I had no credit. I didn't even know what a credit score was. So it was just trying to start with what I could and buy as much as I could. And coincidentally, America had some pretty cheap properties. I will say I learned a lot (laughs) on paper. (laughs) Those Section 8 houses, they're great and you can make good money from them, but you need to probably buy at scale. I didn't know that. Buy my only property and I'm like, I just remember calling my property manager and like, why is the property empty? And it hasn't been, I think one of the units was empty for like two months. And I was like, oh my God, it's empty. You know, like, (laughs) and we had a drive-by shooting. There was a whole bunch of stuff. But the lesson is it wasn't about the size of the first deal. It wasn't about cracking that deal out of the park. It was about getting going. And that was my whole thing. It was my money. I could risk it. It could get me going. And I do remember thinking to myself, like, I could go spend this money on mentorships or whatever. But I thought, no, I'm, I'm a more sink and swim type of guy. I think I got to a point combined with my stuff learning in Australia, I'd sort of been self-educating for about two and a half years. I'm like, I need to get going here. Like I need to, I can only read so much in a book. I've got to sort of get on the treadmill and start actually working out. And that's what I did. And that led me to my second little property. And then it led me to a fix and flip that I did in Philadelphia. And then in 2013, the sort of, not the roof came off, but the mindset expanded and I started to get into large multifamily. And then what markets did you move in when you started getting into the large multifamily? Because again, I don't think you're doing that in Syracuse or Philadelphia, right? That's not really what people think of when they think of multifamily markets. Yeah, no, they don't. And so in 2013, you know, the story goes that a good friend of mine from Canada actually came down to New York City. It was the end of 2013. I'm sitting at a bar with him boasting about my, I think I had seven units at the time. And I'm earning next to nothing in a structural engineering job in New York City. And look how good I am. And he went on to tell me about his 70 unit that he bought in Canada. And I was like, 70, like seven zero. And he's like, yeah, yeah, 70. I was like, how the hell did you do that? And well, he talked about mentors and other people's money and seller carryback financing, all these things, all these little key phrases I'd heard at the rear events, at these networking events, but I didn't know how to implement them, right? I was just like, well, I've got money and I'm going to buy that property over there and I'm going to finance it. With That was all I knew in my sort of 
blinkers were on. Here's a good friend of mine who's just now setting the bar at a certain level. And I will say, Jim, that I was getting to a point where I knew I was hitting that ceiling, so to speak, and I needed that mentor. I needed someone else. It was all self-educating for the last three to four years, and I just I just knew I need something, something inside of me, if that makes sense. So end of 2013, I go get a mentor, and through that mentor, I started building a platform, raising money, and doing deals with him to then eventually branch out or often do it my own and to what we built today. You mentioned a mentor, and I know a lot of people are looking for mentors or how did you find a mentor? Because you said it like it's some easy thing. I just walked outside and found a mentor and I'm sure (laughs) that isn't exactly how it goes. So can you talk about how you found one and what did you offer the mentor? Did you pay him or or what what was the process? It was a paid mentorship and it was the cheapest one I could find. (laughs) And there was a third element that the guy, and he's very famous today, Mr. Fairless, I think it was his second or third student back. He'd only done one or two, I think one deal. But he was a younger guy like I was. Like I didn't know. I wanted that sort of youthfulness back in 2013, 14. Today, Joe is not my mentor anymore. He was, you know, he was only a mentor for a specific period of time. I have a different mentor today. But the whole idea of mentorship, Jim, is to me, looking back, it was, I think I paid 2500 bucks for a year's worth of time with Joe back in the day. And it was about me betting on myself. And that's the biggest thing to take away because I'm parting ways with 2500 bucks. To me, 2500 bucks back then was a lot of money. It's still a lot of money today, right? I sort of subconsciously had to say to myself, I'm worth it. I'm worth investing in to then take myself to the next level. And no matter if you're active or passive, that act or that sort of self-awareness to say, I am worth it and I'm worth betting on is a really big mind shift changed when you're trying to build something. Looking back, that was definitely a defining moment of like, I'm taking myself seriously and I'm going to need someone in my court to help me get me to the next couple of steps down the path. Yeah, I think that's great. I think whether it's a mentor or something else, I remember when I first really decided I'm going to get into real estate, I went to a conference. And so I had to get on a plane and fly to Dallas. And maybe the conference cost a thousand bucks and the plane ticket was 500 bucks and it was $1,500. And that's not a whole lot of money, but it's still money, right? But what it was, was a commitment. Just like you signing up with a mentor, it means I've spent money. Now I have to take some action. There's no excuse. And that was the same for me. I've spent $1,500 or $2,000 and spent three nights away from my family and all that. I have to do something with this now. And so I think that's like a really helpful thing to think of. You don't want to just spend it anywhere. You want to spend it in a smart place, but it puts some pressure on you to actually do something, right? It's also changing. You're investing in yourself. It's not spending. It's an investment. And I think when you change that the narrative around that, that changes the mindset and the subconscious to say, yes, this is worth it. Because to your point, you had the guts to get on a plane to go and do something. So many people don't like, well, if it's not my backyard, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do anything. I've been similar to you. I've always got on planes and been curious about other markets and not been afraid to spend not a lot of money, but you're going to have to go spend a little bit of money to learn about a new market if you're not living in the Texas's or the Florida's of the world. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I still fly to this day every month. I was last week, I was out in Phoenix all day looking at all my properties. I go to Texas and I go to the Carolinas. Like, you just got to do it. Right. And that's part of business. And I flew halfway across the world just to get here. You know, a four hour flight to Greenville, South Carolina isn't really that far. So, yeah. Right. (laughs) That's funny. So, you mentioned that you learned a lot of lessons. Can you talk about some of those lessons learned? And if you can, most of our audiences we talked about are passive investors. So maybe put it in the lens of, of a passive investor, some lessons that would help passives. The first one is, I remember my dad always saying to me, a fool and their money are easily parted. 
and he was a high school teacher. He didn't have a ton of money, but he over the years he invested in small real estate in, in Australia and has made created some wealth for himself. So the idea of not being a fool, if you're already listening to this podcast, you're probably already not a fool and you're trying to learn more. Like yourself, Jim, you went to a conference back in the day. Regardless of if you're active or passive, you still have to invest in education, in learning, because you don't want to be that fool with their money. I do think since 2012, the access of the Jobs Act to allow investors to invest directly within operators has been a huge game changer and has only been benefited from people like yourself, people like me. And I invest passively with other people's deals. I invest in other sponsors who I'm not in their niche. I invested in a quick service restaurant business a couple of weeks back. I'm in a land flipping fund that I have no idea about land flipping. I'm a passive investor as well. And there's so much benefits to that. And I think that the beauty, one of the biggest benefits is diversification. If you have some money, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Well, the beauty is you can peel off $25,000 or $50,000 at a time and invest it across a few different sponsors that will diversify your risk. You could probably invest it across different asset classes, multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks, whatever. And that allows, in your control, historically, you might have gone, you put your money in the stock market or you put it with a some sort of stock agent that buys you stock. That's You're bringing the power to yourself. And that's you can only become more powerful with more knowledge. But on the other side of the coin is once you have that knowledge, you can then go and out, deploy your money and diversify your risk over so many different asset classes, which I think is just one of the biggest in my time coming to the US. Coincidentally, 2012 was the same year I arrived. It's been a game changer for the entire industry. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily, or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Do you love coffee? Have you ever wanted to invest directly in the coffee industry? You can invest now in the number one largest coffee producer in the country of Colombia, the Green Coffee Company. Headquartered in the U.S., they are now Colombia's largest coffee producer and have opened their $100 million Series C funding round to accredited investors. The Green Coffee Company has over 7 million coffee trees and is on track for a 2026 sale or IPO projecting an 11x ROI for investors. Discounts are available for early funding, but there's limited capacity available. To invest, visit legacy-group.co and click the Current Offerings tab. That's the Current Offerings tab at legacy-group.co. I apologize if you could hear my dogs barking in the background, but the mailman just came. (laughs) Mine might do the same. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned that you invest in other people's deals. You're on both sides, right? You're an operator and you're an investor as a passive. So how do you vet sponsors? Because you really know the questions to ask because people are asking you those questions all the time. So what are some tips and questions and things that people should be focusing on when they're talking to a new operator they're thinking about investing with? Trust is everything. I remember being a first-time operator myself. The way I built that trust was through talking about my story, the coming to America story, and that's how people build trust quickly. So you have to understand the person who you're investing in. Like my company, RSN Property Group, 
It's a banner, but they're really investing in me. They're making sure that I'm going to be a good fiduciary responsibility with their money. And I need, as a sponsor, need to make sure I'm stepping up to the expectations. That encompasses a lot of things. So as a passive, I also have to trust the person who I'm investing with. And that comes through time, interviewing a lot of different sponsors. The sponsors I invest with are actually good mates of mine, and we've been in the industry for many, many years. I see them at conferences. I see them speaking. They are putting their name out there and putting their neck on the line in terms of, hey, this is a business I want to be in for many, many years to come. Thus, I'm putting my name against it. So that, that builds that trust again. And then it's also industries I want to selfishly learn about. I'm curious. like I want to learn about self-storage, right? I don't know anything of the metrics of self-storage or what makes a good self-storage deal compared to a bad self-storage deal. So I'm sort of selfishly learning, putting a little bit of money with these operators to learn a little bit about different asset classes. doesn't mean I'm going to go and be an operator there, but you never know. Someone might present me a self-storage deal. Hey, Reed, here's a self-storage deal you want to buy. Well, when I say I don't know how to underwrite it, well, I do know how to underwrite it because I've got my cash flow model and I've invested in a couple of deals and I know what the metrics are to, to view from that. In terms of deals themselves, because I get asked a lot of questions, I can sort of explain from at least a multifamily point of view, you know, obviously there's a high, the big stuff, you want to be investing in growth markets, you want to be investing where you've got, you know, good landlord, landlord friendly laws. That's all good stuff. It's about the jobs to me. And it's about understanding when you're getting into the nitty gritty, what's the arbitrage between going in cap rates and your interest rates. I know a lot of people, we can get into this, how interest rates have changed in the last 12 months and why we're a bit of a standstill, particularly in the multifamily space, where seller expectations today and buyer's expectations aren't meeting up. And the reason is because interest rates have increased so much. Historically, and I've bought deals where you might be buy a deal at a four cap, but you got interest rate at a five cap, right? It's a value-add value deal. So that arbitrage, you're technically starting underwater. You'll start with negative cash flow because the deal won't spit off enough to make the interest rate. But you've got to be confident in your business plan. You'll be confident in how much you can push rents. You'll be confident in your management skills. You'll be confident in the market that you're going to come up for water, or come up for air, I should say, within the first 12 months. And so by the time you stabilize the asset, your stabilized cap rate is above the interest rate. When that 100 basis point, which is really the max you want to be at, give or take, and take this with a grain of salt, everyone, because every deal has its own story and you have to understand the story. The story is really, really important. But in general, you want to ask, if you are looking at a deal that's going in with a bit of an arbitrage, how long will it take me to get break for air? As interest rates this year have increased so much, you've still got sellers wanting to sell at four, four and a half caps, but you've got interest rates at six and a half percent. That gap is now, it's going to take me longer to come up for air. It might take me two years. That adds risk to the deal, right? So there's just different ways of looking. And this is not just for multi, but this is for a lot of other deals that you're looking at. So understanding the arbitrage between going in cap rates and interest rates is important. The other thing that's really important is the story around the deal. Now, when I say story, how did the sponsor come about this deal? Was it off market? Have they got operations in a market already? Thus, they know how to operate within a certain market. Have they got really, really good broker relationships? Have they been underwriting deals in this market for the last 12 months? They've put in offers, but this is only now the first time they've got a rebound. I know for myself as a sponsor, I go into a market like Greenville, South Carolina is a great example. I've been looking at that market and making offers for over 18 months. And it only was just recently in the last three months that I got my first deal done there. And the reason I do that is because I want to develop a desktop study of the deals. So when I can underwrite 50 deals in a market, I'm going to understand what the operating costs going to be, what's the going cap rates, what's the price per pound, meaning price per unit or price per square foot, what are things trading for? And so 
I build this sense, like calluses on my hands, like going to the gym, I build this second, sort of like a second sixth sense. When someone presents me a deal in Greenville or in the Carolinas now, I can be like, what's it trade? What are you asking for it per price per pound? And within like 30 seconds, I can pretty much already understand if it's going to be a deal or not. Now, that doesn't come overnight. It comes from doing multiple repetitions, underwriting multiple deals. But guess what, Jim? The beauty is I can do that in any single market across the country. You underwrite all these deals, and that doesn't matter whether it's multifamily, self-storage, single family, you do enough of it, you will start to develop just, again, the calluses on the knuckles, the calluses on the hands to know what things cost and know what things trade for. Thus, you will then get a better understanding if it's a deal or not. As a passive investor, you want to hear that type of stuff. You want to say, is this your first deal? If it is your first deal in this market, how many deals have you offered on before this deal? Because that's going to give me a sense of, well, you've been studying this market for a long period of time. I can invest with someone who's new into a market, but I want to understand that they are knowledgeable about it and they've spent time and effort. They're not just flying in on the jet, picking up the first deal they see. You want to see some sort of history there that for us at RSN, we go and document all those existing deals even though if we're not buying them. And we look at deals that we know we can't even raise money for, but we underwrite it just for the fact to keep the data. And that helps us make better decisions in the future. It isn't sexy, but it's a way of making sure that when we do go after deals, we can look at the work and say, oh yeah, we underwrote that bigger deal down the street. We were never going to buy that because it's out of our price range, but that traded for XYZ and that's got rents going here. And we know the story there because we've talked to a couple of property managers. So it starts to help bring the deal to be quote unquote local so we can understand what's going on and if it's a good deal or not. I love that. The fact that you are underwriting all these deals, even though you're not buying all these deals or you don't even intend to buy some. And I think one way that can be translated over to passives, for one, you ask those questions. Passive investors be asking, how many deals are you analyzing this market and all that? That's great. But the other thing passive investors can do is they can do the same thing, right? They can take a bunch of deals that come from you and maybe some other sponsors and do their own analysis. Now, at Left Field Investors, I don't want to underwrite the deal from ground up. That's your job. I'm going to find the sponsor, learn to trust them, and assume that they're going to do that job. But what I do, we have a deal analyzer at Left Field where we just put in some of the financial metrics and then it spits out kind of a red means ask a question, green means yeah, kind of fits. But the point of that is if you do one of those, you're not really learning anything. You're not really checking anything. But you do 50 of those, And then you get to the same point you were talking about. I can look at a deal and look at three metrics and in 30 seconds say, okay, this is one worth pursuing possibly, or no way this doesn't meet my metrics. And it's just a way of screening deals. But to your point, you got to do 50 of them before you put your money anywhere. I just love how you explain that. Yeah. You can do the exact same thing. And back to my point about the control that passive investors have now with the 2012 Jobs Act, you could do that. As you said, you don't want to do it from scratch, but you could get call it 50, and I'm not 50 is a lot, but 50 investment summaries from 50 for different sponsors and start doing the same sort of things, understanding, okay, what's the going in cap rate? How much NOI are they trying to grow? Like in the multifamily space, particularly in some areas, this doesn't apply to all areas, but like Texas and the Carolinas, if I'm buying a deal for say 100K a door, I know to produce a mid-teen IRR for my LPs, I need a 50% growth on that value over five years. So I need to be selling it for $150,000 in five years' time. Or if I'm buying it $200,000 door, I need to be selling for $300,000. That's a rough rule of thumb. Take it with a grain of salt. But I can tell you that that's roughly what it backs into. A 50% growth in value or a 50% growth in NOI will back into a mid-teen IRR depending on the market. So that's just something to look at 
this is just in my experience from multifamily. So I don't know if you can do that for self-storage, but it should be the same because it's all on cash flow modeling. It's all on growing that NOI. If you're pushing the NOI by 50% over a period of five years, that's 10% a year, you should be backing into a growth of price per pound of 50%. Thus, that should be high level backing into a mid-teen IRR to LPs. You mentioned the arbitrage between the going in cap rate and the interest rate, and that's changed, right? Over the last six months, everything's changed. What are some other things that we should be looking at that maybe have changed over the last few months? Because if you started in this in 2018 as a passive investor, you've just been printing money and and everything goes full cycle in two years and you double or triple your money and it's easy. It's not going to be easy anymore. What should we be looking at? What are some things you're seeing in the market? Yeah, look, I think investor expectations are the biggest one, right? Like I come from a country, I remember being taught back in the day, if you double your money in 10 years in Australia, you're doing pretty bloody well. That's historically, I think around about eight or 9% IRR if you double in 10 years. I've always said as a company, if we're doubling investors' money in five to seven years, you're doing really, really well. We've had a really great run since 2008 in the multifamily space, in the commercial real estate space, full stop, that people have doubled, tripled their money in like 18 months. Well, they're anomalies. You want to be investing in good assets that could potentially double your money in five to seven years. If you're doing that consistently, you're going to make a really, really good rate of return. Don't think because the deal doesn't doubles your money in two years that it's a bad deal. You could have a deal that actually is more risky than a deal that's more slow and steady wins the race. So understanding the differences when you look at, oh, this is a 16% or 17% IRR versus a 14% IRR. Well, I'm not going to go to 16% IRR. Well, understand what's the difference. It might be a value-add class C deal in a not growing market versus a more core plus deal in a growing market. Where would you want to have your money coming into a quote-unquote recession over the long term? So that's really important. In terms of getting debt today, you just mentioned it's increased fivefold in a case of 12 months. This time 12 months ago, we were near 0%. Interest rates, you're probably getting on multifamily around 3 to 4%, depending if it's Freddie or you're more commercial. That is now in the 6 to 7%. We have come up. So I guess a lot of things have happened, right? You probably hit your rate caps. <laughs> you know, The rate of interest, if you've got a floating rate debt, has increased quicker if you bought a deal in the last 12 months than the implementation of your business plan, regardless of how good the sponsor is. I don't care who you are. You don't have the same power as what the Fed does to increase by fivefold and then try and increase your business plan in lock, step, and key. It doesn't happen. So what as a passive investor you need to be looking for? I think today's in the debt market is fixed rate debt. Making sure you're getting fixed rate debt with flexible exit options. Because I will say that we are in a bit of a, it's gone up so quickly. You don't want to lock in debt for the next 10 years at today's prices. Debt will even out. I'm pretty sure we can all agree on that. So just making sure you're having the fixed rate to help your short-term pain. You're not having to get floating rate. But then also making sure you've got flexible exit options in say two or three years time that you can get out not too much pain so you can refi or sell it. I think that's a smart move. The other one is making sure you're not going with too much leverage. So coming in, you know, most because interest rates have increased, the debt service coverage ratio means that the lenders are lending less to meet those DCR requirements. So typically you're coming in, I'm seeing quotes in the sort of 55 to 65% leverage. Well, if you're going in again, believing if you can get fixed rate, 55 to 65% leverage, and you believe in your business plan, you're going to be able to push the value, call it 30% in three years. Well, then that now loan will be a lot less than 50%. You can go and get some refi in there to help the deal along. You will be raising more money 
but that means your returns to investors may come down and the investors need to be okay with that. But you've got to understand, well, I'm protecting and hedging against your the downside because I'm getting low leverage. I'm probably over-raising a little bit for my own CapEx and maybe I'm over-raising a little bit for my operating fund. And that all keeps and protects investors. And yes, it may not be a 18 or 19%, but it might be a 14%. And the reason it's a 14% is because we've got low leverage or because we've got a little bit more cash that we're raising to, in order to protect you guys as our investors. So different things are changing. I'm doing that sort of stuff. As a passive investor, you should be looking to understand the differences between who's offering a 17 and who's offering a 14 and why is there a difference. Don't just take it at face value. And then making sure that at that face value, you understand, well, does that really protect the number one thing, which is investor capital preservation? If that all lines up, then maybe that 14 looks a lot better now after you've gone through all those steps than that 17. Yeah, that's great stuff. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I noticed that you're in both A-class and B-class properties currently. Do you have a preference being the market's changed? What's better in the current market? Is it A-class because those tenants are more likely to keep their jobs and all that? Or is it C-class because people are going to be moving down to C-class if the economy goes down? Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, well, I do. And I started with C-class. I still buy some C-class every now and then. It's cheaper. But I still think there's a big need for, quote unquote, workforce housing. Stuff in between when rent checks around $1,000 to $1,500, that's going to be your class B, C plus space. If you can afford to raise the money, so if you're going to go buy a class A building in Phoenix or Austin, for example, that might cost you $80 million versus a class B building in the same market for only $40 million. So it just depends on as a sponsor what we can raise at the time. We have both. We like both. It's the horses for courses. What are you buying? The story what does it mean from an investment downside point of view? I do think that there's a lot of flight to newer product, and that's okay. As a sponsor, given my background in structural engineering, I'm not afraid of the older properties. I don't like buying 60s assets, but you know, a 70s vintage asset that I understand the bones of it, I'm not afraid of that if I have enough capex to cover it and the deal makes sense. It all depends. I do like newer product, but I also have and executed and still execute on older product as well. It just has to be in the right location where the dirt is going to hopefully appreciate quicker over the short term because the area is growing, so to speak. And it seems like deal flow has really decreased. And I think a lot of that is because of the uncertainty and the fact that the uncertainty means the banks maybe aren't really interested in lending as much and also the arbitrage between the cap rates and interest rates. But how do you see that You know, in the next six months to a year or a couple of years? And I know you can't predict the future, but what are you kind of looking for as far as deal flow and are you holding deals to cash flow them? Are you thinking, no, I'm going to be able to sell some soon? What's kind of your thoughts on that? Look, I think to your first point, I actually did a, a state of the webinar a couple of weeks back for all my investors and I can share the link with you guys. It's on my YouTube channel. Go check it out. And we talk about sort of three things like where we've come from, where we are, where we're going. Where we are today is where it's stagnant. Like there's a, not a lot. And you can even look at the single family home market. Like the case in point, I bought this house that I'm living in right now in COVID at a 2.99% interest rate. Do you think I'm selling to go get a 7% interest rate right now? Like Things have come to a grinding halt on both the single family side, homeowners, and also on the multi side. And that's because interest rates are just, everyone wants to transact at yesterday's numbers. So I think we're still too close to the coalface yet. It's only been six to seven months of this higher interest rate environment where people want numbers from 12 months ago. But the other thing is we also want to know what rules to play by. We're all investors, right? We all can make money in any interest rate environment. We just need to understand where's the trees between the forest. When we don't know where the ceiling is and it's this guessing game with the Fed, 
it's a little bit like, well, yeah, why would I want to transact if I can hold and just keep ride this out? Then if I can't get the number that I wanted to get 12, if I want number 12 months ago and I know I can't get it today, then maybe I just hold and keep cash on hand. But that's happening across the entire industry. So I know that I'm offering on deals and back to that arbitrage, sellers just don't want to sell at certain numbers. I'm still putting in offers. I'm still trying to have shots on goal, but it's tough right now. And that's just a couple of things. And that was, again, to the making sure we all know what rules to play by and the interest rate environment. We've got to see some leveling off and the cooling of the inflation to really all start to take a big exhale and then start getting back into it. I do think historically, if you don't know, Christmas time is already slow in good years. This year is particularly slow. We had the midterms. We've got all the stuff, the craziness going on, the war in Ukraine, inflation, and that's it's made it even slower. I think coming Q1 next year, we'll start to see deals ramping back up again. But I do think it's a good time as a buyer, if you can get deals done today, the deals that are getting done are probably because the seller is a little bit desperate and they need to get a deal done. So maybe if you can snag that good deal, it's probably because the debt's coming due, your know, rate caps are coming due. They don't want to refi. In. They've got in at 4% interest rates. They can't handle a, five, a 7% interest rate environment, so they've got to sell. So keeping your eyes out for that. We're also looking at assumable debt. If someone has locked in some really nice debt two or three years ago and they've still got a little bit of IO left on it, we're calling it sub 4%, 3.5%. We'll snap that up all day because that's another way to protect your downside in the short term particularly where the debt market is. So I do think we're going to see some sort of cooling off, at least a slowing down. The other thing I'll say that being international, and we've talked a lot about in the green room, the very interesting thing, and I can't point to anywhere in history where the entire global economy is at the same point. We're all dealing with the same issue. 2008 was an American problem that went across the globe. Today, I think 90% of central banks have had to keep raising their interest rates in lock, step and key with the Fed to keep their dollar competitive with the US dollar. It is causing pressure across the globe, which is, I don't know, please someone comment. I don't know if this has ever happened in history before. Usually it's one country trickles into everyone else. Today, it's we're all sort of at the same starting block. So there is some pain coming around the corner, not necessarily in this country, but in other countries that could have an effect on the global markets coming to 2023. I'm looking at that closely. Case in point, what happened with the pension funds in England, if you've been following what happened over there. So doesn't necessarily mean I'm not a buyer. I'm still buying. I still want to buy. I still want to buy as much bloody property as I can. The fundamentals are still there. People need housing. People need shelter. But you just got to buy at the right price. You got to buy and making sure you're getting the debt at the right leverage and all the other metrics to make sure it makes sense. Well said. Thank you. The last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to and you cannot say investing in the US because that will already be in the show notes. That's your podcast. But we got something else. Could be real estate related or anything. Yeah, look, I'm a huge fan of The Economist podcast. I think it's a great organization production. And that's just more for general, keeping my finger on the pulse and world economics. But in terms of real estate, there's a handful of ones out there that The Bigger Pockets is obviously a, big, is a good one for people getting started. I'm trying to think of other ones. It's funny. As you get a little older and you start operating more, you listen to less real estate podcasts and you listen to more sort of bigger economy stuff with a bigger pockets podcast. In terms of book, I'll recommend some good books if you're interested. Key Person of Influence by Dan Priestley. We've got nothing to do with real estate. It's all to do with building a brand. The book behind me, Who Not How. And then obviously Traction is another big one that I love. So if you can listen to that on audiobooks, same sort of thing as a podcast <laughs> in my mind. No, those are great recommendations. Thank you. And finally, if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? 
Easiest way is to go to reedgoosens.com. That's R-E-E-D-G-O-O-S-S-E-N-S.com. And if you're ever coming through Los Angeles, you want to meet up for a beer or coffee, you can hit me up at info. That's I-N-F-O at reedgoosens.com. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. And we'll talk soon. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents, and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at visor.co. Infielders get 15% off. Hi, this is Zach Haftenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equities multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. That was really a lot of good stuff and a lot of good nuggets I picked up. We had a nice soccer conversation ahead of time, which was always fun. But getting into it, the fact that he took a bus from New York City to Syracuse every weekend to get into real estate, I mean, that shows initiative. And that's the kind of person that you want to partner with, someone who shows initiative and just has a drive to get things done. And a lot of the nuggets I picked up, things that he said, investing in yourself is not spending, it's investing. So if you're investing in yourself by going to a conference or hiring a mentor, it's investing, it's making an investment in yourself, it's not just spending money. And so investments, they're meant to pay off and return something to you where when you're just spending, it just goes away and it's gone. So that's the mindset you need if you want to improve, you want to learn, you want to get better, you got to invest in yourself. So it's fantastic. And as he said, more knowledge equals more power. Great stuff. Trust is one of the components you absolutely need. And that's why at Left Field Investors, you know, we try to use each other, use our community to find partners. Because if I trust somebody and you trust me, then maybe we all trust that person. And that's kind of how we operate. And I thought his explanation of interest rates and going in cap rates really made sense. A lot of people have been talking about that and the arbitrage and how the cap rate relative to the interest rate. But I thought he just explained it in plain English, Aussie English, but plain English that I understood. So that was super helpful. And some of the things that he was looking for in deals now, low leverage and fixed rate debt. And that makes complete sense. It is going to affect returns. Obviously, we're not going to have the same returns we had three years ago, five years ago. But we're in this for the long haul and you got to be constantly invested in order to make money. So that was good stuff that he had. And then analyzing deals for data. I just like that conversation where he's doing analyzing 50 deals to buy one. And that's the same thing I try to do on the deal analyzer and some of the other tools we have at Left Field is the more you use them, the less you have to use them, right? Because you can look at a deal and almost know whether it's worth diving in. And that's a time saver. So it takes you some time to develop the knowledge. 
by underwriting 50 deals or whatever Reed did. But then that gives you a shortcut later on because now you can look at a deal and decide, okay, I can look at three metrics and I know this deal is not for me or it's a maybe. And then if it's a maybe, then you start your process of really analyzing it. So it allows you to look at a ton of deals and just say, no, 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 maybe. And then once it's a maybe, you dig in. So again, great conversation with Reed. Really enjoyed it. Hope you did too. That's all we have for this time. We will see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.